Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, Pastor Rob. It's been a delight to meet everyone. Well, not everyone, but a few of you all. Uh, I bring you greetings from our church in Dallas, Good Shepherd Community Church. Um, So we just enjoyed the worship so much. Thank you all for this great uh, time together, for all your hospitality. I'm going to go ahead and pray also. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this time together in which we can open up your word and study it. We acknowledge that we need the same Holy Spirit who inspired the word to open up our understanding of it. We thank you for the revelation of yourself given through the ancient prophets of Israel. Now, Lord, guide us, instruct us as we study this revelation given through the prophet Isaiah. We ask in Christ Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Now, as we begin this study of Isaiah, we resume it, I should say, let me just remind you the background and the foundation of this prophecy. The Apostle Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we study Isaiah, we are studying something that was supernaturally given to the people of God by the ministry of the Spirit. Therefore, his prophecy is true, his preaching is true, and has immense value for the people of God. We are studying the very same scriptures that Jesus used, that the early church used, that the apostles used. So it would behoove us to never give up studying the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah is especially quoted often in the New Testament. And uh, it has some of our most precious scriptures regarding Jesus the Messiah, such as Isaiah 53, his substitutionary death, and chapter 61, I think it's already been mentioned that Jesus read in the synagogue at Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, one of our brothers already mentioned that uh, he was writing in the 8th century, that's in the 700s, and it was a word of Yahweh for his contemporaries. It was also a message for later generations of Jewish people. Uh, In particular, from the context, it seems he's writing from Isaiah 40 on to the exiles of Babylon as they were coming out of their long captivity. It was a message also for Jesus' day. It speaks of the coming of John the Baptist, the voice crying aloud in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and the Lord would come to save his people. Verse 9 has these tremendous words. Behold your God. Make the announcement. Declare the good news. Behold your God. Yahweh is coming among you. The message of Isaiah is fresh and powerful. 
because it reveals to us the living God, Yahweh. It reveals to us many essential things about the Lord Jesus Christ and his person, his work. He is, of course, the supreme focus of the scriptures, and so we look for him in the scriptures. You remember, of course, in uh, verse 1, scripture says, comfort my people, comfort my people. And verse 2 gives us one of the reasons the people of God should be comforted, because her iniquity is pardoned. Now, we in the church have often used that term and understand what it means, but if we go back and consider the context there of the Jewish people, this is no small comfort for a people who have been blessed above all the other nations in the, in the world by a revelation of the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. It was revealed to them and to no other people. He revealed to them what kind of God he is. He's holy. He's righteous. He's almighty. He's faithful in his steadfast love. None of the pagans had any concept of God anywhere close to that. And not only had he revealed himself to them, he had also revealed to them their sin, which the pagans did not have that knowledge either. How sinful they were, how far apart from the holy God they were. But not only that, God gave them a means of dealing with their sins through the Old Testament sacrificial system which reminded of them their sins and gave them a picture of the Messiah to come that the blood of innocent victims, animals, would have to be shed to cover their sins. So it was a, a provisional, a temporary covering of their sins until the Lamb, the true Lamb of God, would come and pour out his soul unto death and bear the sins of many. Well... <clears throat> This coming of the Messiah was, uh, first of all, revealed in the Garden of Eden when the, the promise was made that the seed of the woman would crush the head of serpent. And throughout redemptive history, we see history moving toward that end, toward the coming of the Son of God who would die on Calvary's cross to pay for the sins of his people. Well, the Babylonian captivity. As one of our brothers mentioned, it took place about 100 years after Isaiah was writing. And if there was ever a time that people needed comfort, it was at that time. They'd suffered as no other nation had ever suffered. Now, the, the revelation of God, the oracles of God, were so precious to them. And yet they were wiped off the face of the earth. The place where they made sacrifices for sin was destroyed. And they were carried away from the land that uh, Abraham had said would be given to them. And so they were taken under the, the sub, subjection of pagan kings and pagan idol worship was all around them. They had suffered immensely. They had paid fully for their sins. But then the mercy of God came to them and the sovereignty of God the rulership over them changed from a different king. A, a Persian king, Cyrus, was chosen by God to lead them, to give them permission to go back to their land and rebuild their temple. 
Well, as they thought about these things, returning to the land in the future days, they would have thought, is Yahweh really going to do these things? Will the promises of God really be fulfilled? Will God really cleanse us and forgive us of our sins? Because we've been so guilty of idolatry. Our people were so stubborn, they refused to listen to the prophets. Will Yahweh really come among us? Walk among us. Be our shepherd. Lead us to quiet waters. Can these promises really come to pass? God has an answer for them. We see it here in verses 12 through 26. How does God begin to answer their questions if he would really fulfill his covenant promises? Well, in the first three verses, we see the word who used several times. Who, of course, refers to a person. Not to a power, not to a force, not to a thing, but to a person. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Whom? Whom did he consult? Who taught him the path of justice? This person is Yahweh himself. Notice that Yahweh is the one who was acting in these verses. Verse 2 says, from Yahweh's hand. Verse 5, the glory of Yahweh, the mouth of Yahweh. Verse 7, the breath of Yahweh. What's revealed here is that God is active. Yahweh is active. He moves among his people. He moves in judgment. This same Yahweh, it's clear who he is, he's God. He's your God, verse 1. Verse 3, our God. And verse 8, our God, your God. The Lord God, Yahweh, is God. Well, how can these great blessings come about? How can they receive forgiveness of their iniquities? They had offended the high and holy God. How could the revelation of the glory of God be shown in all of the earth? How can the coming of Yahweh himself among them come about? Well, it can happen. It will happen because of who Yahweh is. It's because of his greatness that all these things will happen for his own glory and for the good of his people. Now, Yahweh, as we all know, is no small God. He's not like the pagan god Baal, whose 450 prophets Elijah challenged in 1 Kings chapter 18. He called on them to call on Baal, the pagan god, to light the great bonfire upon which a bull had been cut up and placed on top of. Call upon Baal, Elijah said. He challenged them. Let's see how great your God is. And so the 450 prophets began to scream and call upon Baal all day long and nothing happened. The bonfire was still there. The bull cut up was still on top. So Elijah begins to taunt them. Where's your God? Is he daydreaming? Is he relieving himself? Is he taking a nap? There was silence. There was no action. Their God 
could do nothing. But Elijah called upon Yahweh, the living God, to light the fire, and fire poured out from heaven and burned up the bonfire with a rushing, mighty wind of fire. So the powerlessness, the deafness of Baal is seen in response to the uh, in comparison to the responsiveness and the power of Yahweh. One is a dead God, and one is a living God. Yahweh's incomparable greatness is revealed here in comparison to Baal. You see, our passage today reveals Yahweh's incomparable greatness to any other being or thing in the universe. The Israelites needed to be reminded of this in the midst of their historical circumstances because they had suffered such deserved hardship for their sins, yet they were being released and the opportunity was given them to return to their land. Would God be with them? Would he still accomplish his ancient promises through them, through a seed of the Jewish people? to be the savior of the world with all their enemies surrounding them? Would God be strong enough, Yahweh be strong enough to preserve them and committed enough to complete his promise to bring salvation to them? Isaiah has answers here. In the hard circumstances of life, what does the prophet Isaiah say? He says, he points them to Yahweh, to God himself. He is the answer to their needs, to their worries, to their dangers. The name Yahweh means, the name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. So Isaiah appoints these people and generations that follow down to our day of Yahweh's incomparable greatness. Now, first of all, he is incomparably great to any other power or person, number one, because he created all things. In verse 12, we see that he measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now about 71% of the earth's surface is water, most of this in the deep oceans, yet God measures these in the hollow of his hand. God, of course, is a spirit, he doesn't have a physical body, except in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if God did have a physical body, it would be no problem for him to pick up all the oceans, the trillions of tons of water, and hold them in the hollow of his hand. After all, he did create the heavens, the earth, and the oceans. Genesis 1.9 says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And he called the waters seas, and he saw that it was good. Water, something we take for granted, I think, but it is an amazing element. H2O is a chemical formula. Water flows, it's clear, it evaporates, it freezes, quenches our thirst, we cook our food in it, we bathe in it, it falls from the sky and waters our farms, ranches, and yards. 
Without a daily supply of water, we will all soon die. But who is the creator of water? Was it an accident of nature? No. Water is made by the creative purpose and hand of Yahweh. What other being do you know of that created the oceans of the world? Do the pagan gods have this kind of power? Well, Baal couldn't even send a fire down from heaven to burn up the bonfire. This summer, as most of us here in the South have experienced, it was a long, dry spell. The farmers and ranches were hurting. Everybody's yard was being burned up. Some of the Christians prayed for rain. Finally, the rains came. It was the hand of God that sent the rain. Job chapter 5, verse 10 says this, He, that is Yahweh, He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. You see, God is active in His creation. He is not passive. He's actively involved. He gives the rain. Now, of course, He uses means, clouds, and, and evaporation, and all these things, but the ultimate force and power behind the falling rain is Yahweh Himself. Well, what else did God create? Look again at verse 12. He marked off the heavens with a span. A span is the width of your hand. Here again, if the eternal God wanted to, he could take the entire universe, put it in his hand. The universe in one hand, the oceans of the world in another hand. He created all these things by his word of command. Who else do you know that can speak a universe into being by the word of his command? Only Yahweh can do this. He delivered the Israeli people from Egyptian bondage. He delivered them again, later generations, from Babylonian captivity. And he promised to bless the nations around the world through one of their descendants. In spite of their unfaithfulness and idolatry, God had not forgotten his ancient promise to send a savior to the nations through one of their descendants, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of King David. So God could not let them be extinguished by the Egyptians or the Babylonians. A descendant had to come through this ethnic group of people. When God makes a promise, he will keep his promise. What are two basic attributes of God? Loving kindness and faithfulness. God is faithful to his command, faithful to his promise. Well, the hand of power of God is, is very strong. Look at verse 25 and 26. The scripture says, To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he's strong in power. Not one is missing. What is this? We sang about this today. 
the host or the stars, the heavenly bodies is what the text seems to be referring to. All the galaxies and constellations in the sky. We don't see those constellations very clearly in the city because of all the light pollution, as we call it, but out in the desert, you can see these constellations in the sky. Amos chapter 5, verse 8, speaks of these starry constellations. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name. The Pleiades and Orion are constellations in the sky. Yahweh is the one who put them there. Interesting, it says, he knows all these stars and planets. He's given them a name. They're not just a, a, a blob of stars out there, but he knows each one. He's aware of each star, each planet, their color, their weight, their relation to those heavenly bodies around them. You see, one thing we see here is that God's watch care over his creation is one of particularity. He's particular. He knows each of his creations. He sees each sparrow that falls from the ground. He sees every tear that falls. He hears every cry of his people. He listens carefully. He knows his whole creation. He's a God of particularity. He especially knows his people. So he's incomparably great to all other powers because he weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance. Occasionally I make a yellow squash casserole and I need two pounds of yellow squash. So at Walmart, they had a scale there that I would weigh it out and get my two pounds. Well, if Yahweh wanted to, he could just as easily take the mountains and the hills and weigh them on a scale. He could tell us how much Mount Everest weighs, how much Mountain Magazine, I understand is the tallest mountain in Arkansas, weighs. But uh, he knows these things. He is the one who created such things. Verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Talking about the nations of the world. They think they're so powerful, and they are powerful as far as humans go. Three strongest military powers in the world today are Russia, U.S., and China. And these dictators like Putin and the the leader of North Vietnam, they like to parade their military on May Day, their missiles, their soldiers, their tanks. But the scripture says, all the mighty nations of the world are like dust on a scale. How much does dust on a scale change the weight of anything? Nothing. It's negligible. In the eyes of God, these great powerful nations are negligible. What about the coastlands? It says, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Well, we have our coastlands in Texas. 
Uh, Galveston, some of you have probably been there. And we have these cities along the coast, New Orleans, Miami, and all the, all the combined coastlands of the world could be picked up by Yahweh and sprinkled on the ground like sawdust. If you cut a board until you know some sawdust falls down on the ground. Well, Isaiah is talking. He's prophesying. Who can do all these mighty works of creation? The Jews were discouraged and downhearted because of their 70 years in captivity. Did their failings derail God's plan? Was their hope for a Savior to come dissipated by their sins? Isaiah is answering their questions and saying his purposes will ultimately be fulfilled. He's letting them know that God's mercies, God's purpose will be carried out. How do we know that? Because he created the world. He created the universe. If he can do that, he can keep his other promises. And he will keep his other promises. He's not only the incomparably great creator of all things, but secondly, he's incomparably great because he governs all things in wisdom. Verse 13 says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him counsel? Here we see the very secret of the reality and the essence and the power of the living God. It is his spirit, his Holy Spirit, the presence of his spirit on earth, especially among his people. The spirit of God is his living presence, especially among us. You see, the spirit of God distinguishes Yahweh from all the pagan gods, from all the human powers on earth. He's incomparable to them in his holiness. He's separate from sin. He's high and holy. He abhors sin. Mankind glories in sin. He's the Holy Spirit. Sinful humans disqualify themselves from entering his presence because of their sin. God is on a different level of existence than we are. He's creator. He's eternal. He knows all things. We know very little. He's a source of all light and life. Too often we're captivated by our own darkness. He's perfect in all of his virtues. He revealed himself to Moses. For example, in Exodus 34, verse 6, he described himself as Yahweh's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So he doesn't wink at sin, but he's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. But we humans, on the other hand, are poverty-stricken in all these virtues, and we stand in desperate need of divine grace and mercy, or we'll perish in our sins. Yahweh is incomparable to the pagan gods, to the human powers. 
He's incomparable in his understanding of all things material and spiritual. He knows, for example, the kinds of creatures at the very bottom of the earth, several miles down that we are yet learning about through deep sea exploration. God knows what all those creatures are. He knows their size, their shape, their color. He also knows what's in the heart and minds of men and women. He understands our motivations, our goals, our longings, our fears. John chapter 2, verse 24 says, Jesus knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Most of us have heard of that famous Austrian psychoanalyst, Sigmund Freud. He thought he'd figured out what motivates human actions, but his theories can nowhere be compared with Yahweh's perfect knowledge of humanity. Psalm 139, verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows us perfectly. He knows all things. He understands all things. Verse 14 says, Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? When God created the universe, there was no one else to consult with. In the Trinity, he was there by himself. Even if he had already made some angels and heavenly beings, he was more knowledgeable, of course, than him because he had created them. So he didn't consult anyone. Job 21, 22 says, Will any teach God knowledge that he judges those who are on high? Isn't it arrogant for anybody to think they can teach God something? He who has perfect knowledge of all things. Verse 14, Who taught him the path of justice? Can anyone in the universe teach God about justice? The pagan gods cannot do that for sure because they're as full of sin as humans are. They're marked by greed, lust, and deception, just as bad or worse than humans. So who can teach God justice? The non-Christian man, unacquainted, unacquainted with divine revelation, might have the arrogance and the ignorance to claim sinlessness as a recent president did. But there is no man or woman or young person who lives and thinks anywhere like Yahweh with perfect righteousness and justice. Verse 14, who taught God knowledge? Who taught Yahweh knowledge? Who was around at the dawn of creation to advise him how to construct the various chemical elements in the universe? Was there someone there to explain to him how to set up the force of gravity so the planets would stay in place? No. No one. No one can compare with Yahweh in his knowledge, his wisdom, his understanding. He's the great creator, the sustainer, and the governor of the universe. No one is comparable to Yahweh. Verse 21 says, 
Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He's saying, shouldn't you have known all these things about me? How should they have known about Yahweh's incomparable greatness? Well, there's two ways I like to suggest that they should have known. First of all, it was from creation itself. The creation that surrounded them and that continually shouted at them and displayed the creative hand of God. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It was true back then. It's still true today. It's true for every human on planet Earth. The creation reveals the existence, the power, and the glory of God. And the great, powerful waterfalls like Niagara Falls or the, or the volcanoes or the dainty spring flowers that grow in your garden. Exquisitely beautiful. The creative, artistic hand of God is seen. Second way they should have known these things is from the Hebrew Scriptures that have been given to them through Moses. They would have learned about Yahweh's creative work. They should have known these things. They should have thought about them. They should have put their faith and trust and obedience in Yahweh. But they didn't. So judgment came to them. Yahweh governs all things in perfect wisdom. He not only creates all things, he governs all things. He directs all things according to his perfect plan. The universe is not just flying off in every direction, subject only to the laws of gravity and thermodynamics, unsupervised with no end in sight. No, he is in control of all these things, even the universe. Verse 22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. How is the universe governed? Verse 22 again brings into focus it's he that does it, Yahweh. The pronoun he reminds us that God is in control. He is carrying out his plan in the universe. He sits above the circle of the earth. Like at the Arctic Circle, a picture here is of God seeing the whole earth. He sees the humans like grasshoppers. And the destiny of the Jewish nation, the destiny of every man, woman, and young person is not subject to the blind whims of impersonal fate but is under the watchful eye of him who sits upon the circle of the earth and views its inhabitants and determines his purpose to be fulfilled in the earth and among the people. He's knowledgeable of all humanity. They're under. We're under his watchful gaze. He's directing all things. Look at verse 23 and 24. Who, there again, pronoun who, referring to Yahweh. 
Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You see, notice here, who brings princes to nothing? What tense of the verb is used? It's the present tense. He's active in his creation. He continues to do this. The princes and rulers of this present world will be brought to nothing by Yahweh. He will make the rulers as emptiness. They'll reign for a little while and then their kingship will be removed when he blows on them. Yes, there may be a military coup. There may be a foreign power that conquers them. But behind it all, it's Yahweh who is blowing on them and blowing their rulership out of existence. It's not the wind of chance, but it's the wind of Yahweh that's blowing upon the peoples of the earth. He is the final determiner of all people of their destiny. We saw early in verse 6 that all flesh is like grass. It flourishes for a while and then it withers and blows away. Yahweh is the one blowing on the grass. Well, who can compare with Yahweh's governance of all things, of all events and all people? No one, nothing can. Only an eternal, all-powerful, all-wise God could create all these things and govern and supervise all that's going on in his universe. Not that he actively causes evil. It exists. It's hard to explain. But God is working out his purposes in the earth. Paul the Apostle said there are some so-called gods that men worship. But they're not really gods at all, says the Apostle. They have no life. No power. There's no power or God that can compare with Yahweh and his work as creator and his work as the all-wise governor of all things. And the last point I want to make here is that compared to Yahweh's greatness, humanity's accomplishments are very tiny. They're nothing compared to Yahweh's might and power. For example, consider the idols of the pagans, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? You want to compare God, Yahweh, with an idol? Let's think about that. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. Cast it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So, Isaiah is saying here, shall we compare Yahweh to a human creation, to an idol? What is an idol? It's a figure of a man, an animal, or some half man, half animal created by a craftsman. Now, Isaiah has been describing the great creative and beautiful work of Yahweh. 
And he says to his listeners, how do man-made things such as idols compare with Yahweh? Yahweh is the one who crafted the universe. He's spoken into existence by the mere word of his command. But the idols of mankind must be carved and shaped by idol makers. Now, this is not a dead issue. The last couple of weeks, Wayne and I have stayed in a couple of motels in Texas, and both of them had Hindu families uh, taking care of the motel with their idols everywhere in the waiting room. We had the opportunity to witness to one of those families, but idolatry is alive and well. In India, 300 million gods, they say, are worshipped by the people. And Hinduism is trying to rise in power to put this on more people. This idol worship is here in America. So it's not a dead issue. Some of our Roman Catholic people worship statues. Well, you see, here's the problem with idols. Sometimes they're made out of wood. You've got to be careful to choose some good, solid wood that's not going to rot. It's expensive, you know, to employ a craftsman to make you an idol. You have to pay him for his labor, and you've got to pay for the materials. So if you're going to invest in an idol, you might as well get your money's worth. When you get it finished, you set it up. Choose the place carefully where you're going to set it up, because it's not going to be able to move wherever you put it. It has no power to move itself. And after it's set up, you can go down and fall down before it and worship it. But be careful. You don't accidentally hit against it because if you do, it's going to fall down. The scriptures make fun of idol worship, rightly. It is ridiculous when you think about it for humans to worship something that they make out of their own hands with the rest of the wood they, they make a fire and they cook their bread on it so in comparison to the nations of the world and their rulers and their powers we can say with the words of the psalmist in 145.3 great is Yahweh Greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Or we could join in with Psalm 96.4. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Now we have some gods in America. They're not idols that people fall down before, but money, materialism, and all these things that captivate so many people in our culture. Well... <clears throat> What are some lessons we can learn today from this passage? As we consider the greatness of Yahweh, the creator and the governor of all things, he's incomparable. And these great acts, these great actions, he accomplishes all of his will. We can have, we can have confidence in him that he will fulfill all of his promises given to the patriarchs, to the ancient promises, given to the prophets, his plan to send a savior, a servant, redeemer, 
to bring about the full and final and complete forgiveness of the sins of his people. God's plan of redemption will be fulfilled. It was fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah and his first coming. He was the incarnate Lord, the Son of God, born of Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was raised on the third day after his burial. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's reigning and ruling over all things in heaven and earth, directing their end unto his own glory. He will come again on the last day to receive his people unto himself and clothe us with, his, with our resurrection bodies like unto his glorious body. And so we will ever be with the Lord, with Yahweh in his resurrected flesh with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we live under his creatorship, his governorship, we, become to, we come to realize more and more that our lives and our times are in his hands. The truth dawns on us. Our lives are not our own anymore. We belong to Jesus Christ, who died and rose in our behalf. We belong to our creator and the governor of the universe. To him, we owe our salvation, our deliverance from darkness, from sin, from death. We cannot repay him, but we can live for his glory and live under his ownership. We belong to him now, and our lives are fulfilled when we seek to do his will as we follow his commandments. The ancient Jews were coming out of Babylonian captivity, and they wondered about their fate and the fate of their nation and the fate of the ancient promises of God. Did God have the power and determination to keep his promises? Would he do this? Could he do this? Could they really have their sins completely forgiven? Could they really dwell with Yahweh and his presence to be his people and to be their God? And so they thought about God. And they thought about his incomparable greatness. They thought about his governorship, his direction, his supervision over all things, of his supreme greatness over all human endeavors, and they received their answer. And we received the same answer. Yes, a million times yes. Yes, God will fulfill his ancient promises. He will bring in everlasting salvation to the nations of the earth through the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman who came and lived among us and died and paid for our sins and rose from the dead. So what's the great answer to the needs and concerns, not only of the ancient Israelites, but of our needs and our concerns today? What's the answer? The answer is in a person. Who? Who is the one who did all these things? Yahweh himself. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is our Savior. It is he who is governing controlling and directing all things towards his own glory 
and his desired purpose to save a people for himself, to take them to his bosom as a shepherd would take the little lambs. And this Yahweh came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. If we know this, if we belong to Jesus, everything else in life is secondary. If we know this, we know what is primary. To know Him is to have life and salvation. Even when the storms and troubles of life come, if we're anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father, we can persevere. We can flourish in our service and our worship of Him. This is what ultimately matters in life. As we think about the incomparable creatorship and governorship of Yahweh, we conclude He's worthy. He's worthy of our trust. He created all things. He maintains all things. He can be trusted to give Him our lives. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our service, of our rigorous service in His name. And He's worthy of being declared to the nations of the earth, for without Him they will die and perish. To Jesus Christ be the glory and the service of our lives. To Him be eternal dominion and praise now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you who are Yahweh come in the flesh, and you who now abide at the right hand of God in heaven, we thank you that you came and you conquered sin, death, hell, and Satan. Thank you that you alone are the incomparable creator and governor of the universe of all time and eternity. We thank you. We worship you today. We offer ourselves once more to your service and to your glory. Use us, we pray, in your kingdom's work. Strengthen us every day in your gospel and by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the fellowship of your church, the people of God on earth. Bless, O Yahweh, the church that gathers in this place and in other places, that all of us might please you and be a blessing to one another, to be a light in a dark world. In your holy name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.